You are listening to the Teaching Little Brains podcast with Sarah Nikaruk, episode 28. Hello, Teacher Brain. I have a question for you and you only have five seconds to respond, but you can shout out as many answers as you want during that five seconds. Okay, so how many uses can you think of for a toilet paper tube? All right, how many did you think of? You just participated in an alternative uses test, which is used to assess creativity. Creativity is all over the place. It's all around us. You can see it in artwork or music or poetry or even in architecture, science and engineering and nature. And I have been astounded by the level of creativity and ingenuity that has emerged during this like global lockdown that we've been living in for the past few months. Um, it's amazing to me how people have like shifted their businesses and solved problems and brought performances online and adapted their practices and come up with all kinds of ways to entertain themselves and others. Some people have been sharing their creations, like uh, there's some pre pretty cool artwork out there, inventions are being made, there's filmmaking happening, uh, creative writing, song parodies, all kinds of weird, weird and wonderful stuff. It's pretty amazing to me. Anyway, creativity is all around and it's, it's pretty easy to identify. Most people, when looking at or discussing something, can agree whether creativity is involved or not. But just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to define it here for the scope of our discussion today. So I'm talking about creativity as the capacity or act of conceiving something original or unusual. And innovation, while we're at it, as the process which results in the implementation of something that has never been made before is recognized as the product of something unique, of some unique insight, and that improves a product, a process, and or an understanding. So they go hand in hand, but they're not quite interchangeable. Creative thinking is part of innovation, in my opinion, but creativity doesn't necessarily have the same outcome as innovation, which is the improvement of a product process and or understanding. So to me, the main difference is the outcome. And that's where I'll be talking from today, just so we're on the same page. So we can identify creativity and innovation fairly easily, but where does it come from? And what is happening in our brains when we're being creative? So let me tell you about an interesting little guy called the nematode worm. The nematode worm is one of the simplest animals on the planet with a nervous, one of the simplest animals on the planet with a nervous system. It's only a hundred, or sorry, it's only one millimeter long and it's transparent. And the interesting thing about the nematode worm is that it exhibits behaviors that we interpret as curiosity. So it doesn't just spend its time like sniffing around for food. It actually seems to explore its environment, learning about what is around it. And the interesting thing about this behavior is that the nematode worm only has 383 brain cells or neurons. Any guess as how many as to how many brain cells that we have as humans on average? 86 billion. 86 billion neurons. And the nematode worm has 383. <laughs> 
So, and to make this simple, as animals, we have two groups of neurons. And I'm not talking about the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. You may have heard before that the right hemis, the right side of your brain is like the creative side and the left side of your brain is the logical analytical side. I want you to check out that old thinking. Um, these two parts are a little bit different. So roughly speaking, one group senses the environment and the other group reacts to it. And in most animal brains, there is a path that is hardwired between the sensing group and the acting group. In your human brain, however, you have way more parts connecting the two groups. In fact, you have a surplus of paths and parts between your ears and way more than you need to perform vital tasks. So they form these, these complicated tangled networks that aren't really being used a lot of the time. So they come up with random spontaneous thoughts. Kind of like when kids in your classroom uh, or home kind of like what they do when they're they're bored. They start doing all kinds of random and spontaneous things. And actually, often, if you're able to look at it with objective objectivity and remove the emotional charge that surges when you realize they've just like drawn on the wall with Sharpie or painted their face with white glue, they're, they're being creative. And it, your brain loves novelty. It is constantly looking for the next new thing. You may be familiar with like the squirrel effect or the shiny object syndrome. And I definitely suffer or experience both of those like on a daily basis. So while the nematode worm with its 383 neurons pokes about in its environment, as a human with 86 billion neurons, your curiosity leads to creativity and innovation. And it's funny because many people when asked are you creative, say no, or at least they hesitate or underestimate their creativity. But have you ever had a random thought? That's creativity. Has your mind ever wandered? That's creativity. In fact, studies suggest that wandering mind is essential for creativity. So your mind spends about 30% of its day wandering about looking for squirrels and shiny objects. And that it's, it's this wandering that sparks your creativity. So have you ever noticed when you think and think and think on a problem, the answer just won't come, but then you like get up and go for a walk or you plop down in front of the TV or you get into the shower and bam, epiphany, genius strikes. So the hypothesis is that when you relax your focus, your higher level cognitive functioning backs off enough to let your subconscious stew over the ideas and come back to you with a solution. And you know by now how powerful your subconscious is. And if not, go back after this and listen to episodes two and 16 in particular. So in fact, there are thousands of reports of companies spending hours and investing big bucks into solving their problems and trying to come up with innovative solutions. And then some like random delivery guy walks in off the street and says, well, why don't you try this and solves the problem in no time. So it's the same premise. It's like in the, co in the coaching I do when people are often like too close to their own stuff to see it clearly. You need to step back and put some space between yourself and the problem and then it all kind of becomes clear. 
Okay, so speaking of wandering, uh, oh yes, okay, brain scans. So when hooked up to brain imaging technology, researchers can see that over 40 different areas of the brain are involved when some, someone is thinking creati creatively. So there's no one area that is responsible for creativity. It's like a cooperation between parts, the imagination center that generates the ideas and the executive functioning center that governs pretty much everything else. And this cooperation results in creativity mainly in three different ways. So blending, which is imagining things in existing things in new ways, breaking, which takes an idea and breaks it into pieces, and blending, which is um, mixing a few things together. So you go from like brainstorm, which is generating a bunch of those thoughts um, in these three areas, and then they get filtered and the best ones get approved by executive control. And that's the cooperation factor. And this is super interesting. In a study done with two groups of children, one with ADHD and one without, while the children with ADHD were a bit slower to complete the task because they had trouble focusing on the instructions, they scored higher on the creativity test. Whereas the children without ADHD were quicker to complete it, but they scored lower in creativity. So this backs up the concept that um, reduced activity in the executive function network allows the imagination center to ramp up and increase creativity because kids with ADHD typically, they can't turn off their imagination center and they have trouble accessing their, their um, executive functioning center. So how does one measure creativity? <laughs> well, there are actually a bunch of tools that test creative thinking that were designed in the 50s and 60s that we still use today. And in fact, there is a group of tests called the Torrance tests that is most widely used still to, to test uh, creative potential. And it involves a bunch of subtests. And most often, these tests are used with children, but also with adults. Um, but these test divergent thinking, which is the like outside of the box thinking. But there are different types of creativity. So there are also tests for convergent thinking, which essentially the ability to give the correct answer. Um, and while convergent thinking is lower level in terms of creativity, there there is some creative thought required. So for example, let's try uh, the remote association test. Uh, which is convergent. So the point is to test your ability to see relationships between things that are only remotely related. So can you come up with connections between these three seemingly unconnected words? So for example, mouse, blue, sharp. Mouse, blue, sharp. What is the one word that you that would connect all of these things together? So mouse, blue, sharp. It's cheese. So their cheese is connected to a mouse because mouse eats cheese. There's blue cheese and there's sharp cheese. Let's try another one. How about um, bald, screech, emblem? Bald, screech, emblem. Eagle would be the answer there. Okay, let's do one more. Chamber, staff, box. 
chamber, staff, box. Music. Mm-hmm, that wasn't tricky. Neat, eh? So have you ever played that game Tribond, I think it was called? It, this is much like that. It's something you can do um, in your home or classroom with the little brains there. You can play the game as is, or they could create their own clues. You could do it in the car. You can do it at the dinner table or in line waiting to go to phys ed. Um, like my brain's swirling with ideas. But you think, how else could you use this? Now, on a brain level, what's happening in this case is when you get the first word, your brain sort of scans all possibilities for it. So it comes up with like this list of words in your mind. And then as you move to the second word, it rescans to pick out the ones that fit. So that's your cooperation at work there. And then when you get to the third one, then your executive thinking brain, your executive functioning brain pulls out the best one that applies to all three. For divergent thinking, the tests are things like the Wallach or Wallach-Kogan creativity test, where you have to come up with as many things as you can around a certain category, and there are no set answers. So for example, um, name as many things as you can that have wheels. As many things as you can that have wheels. Or you could give something like, Name all the ways that a cat and a mouse are similar. So these divergent tests are measured according to the system, uh, a system created by J.P. Guilford, who was a psychologist from the 50s. And Dr. Guilford was kind of the pioneer of creativity tests. And he introduced four elements to measure. So the first is fluency, which is strictly just like a point per number of answers you come up with. It's fairly straightforward. And then flexibility, which counts the number of different categories you explored. So for wheels, if you thought of transportation type wheels, machinery type wheels, and wheels of cheese, you'd have touched on three categories. If you only mentioned um, the physical characteristics that cats and mice have in common, then that would earn you one point and indicate a low level of flexibility in your creative thinking. The third category is originality. So each response compared to the total responses. So it's kind of like when you play, um, I think it's Mad Libs, where you get a point for each answer that no one else had. And so, or categories, I guess that would be, sorry. Categories where you get a category and you have to think of all the things. You get a category and a letter and you think of all the things you can in that category that start with that letter. And for each one that you had that no one else has, you get a point. So that's the same as originality. And so if like 70% of your answers were things that um, other people did not have, then it would indicate a high level of originality. And that indicates strong communication between your two brain hemispheres. And then the fourth category is elaboration. So adding detail to explain your response. So for example, if you said that cars have wheels, but then you elaborated and pointed out that they have wheels on the outside, as well as a steering wheel on the inside, that would count as elaboration. So here's another divergent thinking test that would be super neat for your students and could result in some pretty cool like products, like uh, writing pieces or productions, films, like get creative, haha, <laughs> pun intended. Now, in person, 
or virtually, you show someone an object like a stuffed animal, let's say a penguin, but here we're going to imagine it. So imagine a stuffed animal, stuffed penguin. And then you ask people or ask your audience, how could you make this object more fun? And then you just see what they come up with. How about this one? And this is for you, teacher brain. If school was abolished, what would you do to get an education? If school was abolished, what would you do to get an education? Right? Brains twirling. So this all goes back to the episode I did on the power of asking better questions. Episode nine. Ask your brain how you could use this. How could you extend it? How could your students get more opportunity to practice their divergent thinking? Use your creativity to figure out how to teach creativity because creativity is learnable. Now, while there is some evidence that suggests that people, um, and they did this with families, um, people with an extra copy of a gene called the glucose, uh-oh, the glucose muterotase gene, muterotase gene involved in the release of serotonin, which promotes neural connections, may contribute to a proclivity for creative thinking, as does risk-taking and openness to new experiences. Creativity can be trained, honed, and taught. Now, so, and this is evident because professionally, professional training in creativity enhances creative thinking. So people who are um, professionally trained in creative um, professions, like professional dancers, artists, and musicians. So they've been proven to think differently about creative challenges and tasks. And they have different parts of their brains that light up when compared to novices tasked with the same challenge. So it can really be honed. So the key in developing a strong positive, sorry, the key is developing a strong positive learning community, fostering a spirit of risk-taking and resilience, allowing for reflection, um, presenting students with authentic problems to solve, and making room for experiential learning and offering constraints. Wait, what? Did you just say constraints to teach creativity, Sarah? Isn't that contradictory? Well, consider this. How many mornings have you opened your closet, stared at the vast array of clothing and said, I don't have anything to wear? Not having anything to wear is not actually your problem, nor the truth. The truth is you have too much to choose from. You don't have the constraints within which to come up with an outfit for yourself. So it's the same thing with teaching creativity. If I said, invent something new made from whatever you want in any shape or size, is that type of boundless freedom liberating or paralyzing? Whereas if I said, create something to move this object from point A to point B using only the materials in front of you, suddenly your brain is flooded with ideas. So creative constraints is what we call them. They play an important role in discovery and invention. They serve as drivers and are an essential part of experimental design. Remember Apollo 13? They had to figure out how to get a square peg into a round hole using nothing but the materials available on the spaceship. That was the constraint. 
and lives were on the line. So talk about limitations. And if you're not sure where to begin, try constraints in time or materials or money or purpose or word count. Twitter is a great example of that. Um, if you're talking about writing, and by writing, obviously, as always, I include oral writing, of course. But one of my favorite new writing prompts is um, write a horror story using only six words. Or you can sub out horror for something else or sub out story for something else. Or you could make it tell me a story in six symbols or tell me a story in eight movements. Get creative with it. Again, pun intended. Um, and try this out for yourself. So the next time you think you have nothing to wear, when you go to your closet in the morning, ask your brain, can I put together an outfit, including shoes, earrings, and hair accessories, starting with my teal shirt in under a minute? Your brain's kind of like, like it's always looking for novelty. So your brain's going to go fun, challenge accepted, and fires off all those really great um, celebratory chemicals um, that we talked about in episode one, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, all that stuff. And then when you're dressed and out the door, here is a creative constraint task that teacher um, Adil Vorda did with his class of, I think it was fifth graders in the States. So he showed them a drawing of an analog clock, like the one with the hands on it, and told them to remove the second hand and replace it with something else. So imagine I'm showing you the same thing. What could you replace that second hand with? So you may be picturing like a pin or a needle or a straw or a toothpick or chopstick. And that's a good start. But it's what we would classify as low-level creativity, think, creative thinking. So thinking back to our four categories of fluency, flexibility, originality, and elaboration, because there wouldn't be a super long list, not many categories, um, many people come on, coming up with the same responses, and little elaboration, that would earn you a low score on, the, on that scale. But then what if I added the constraint of it having to be something green? Now your brain is diving a bit deeper into the creativity pool and maybe coming up with things like a dinosaur tail, a witch's finger, green spaghetti. Now what if I say it has to be something alive? Now what comes to mind? Perhaps a giraffe, a stick bug, a snake. You get the idea. So limitation actually fuels creativity by filtering out the cliche go-to responses. So you kind of want to think outside the box, but from within it in a way. So where the box is the constraints, but your ideas are divergent. Because here's the thing, too much freedom results in the lowest level responses in terms of creativity. So we want to practice, we want to practice creativity teach it and hone it. And because more and more employers are seeking creative thinkers to join their team, they're looking for innovators. And one of the ways in which they are starting to screen for innovative mindset is by presenting prospective employees with creative problem solving questions and in interviews. And it's not necessarily about getting the right answer. 
but rather about getting a better picture of an applicant's thinking process and an ability to analyze situations. So questions like, how many golf balls can you fit in a school bus? Or why are manhole covers round? Or how many times does a clock's hands overlap? And these are not trick questions. My husband's always think always thinks there's a trick to these things. They it, they're real questions. How many golf balls can you fit in a school bus? But the, they don't they're not looking for like they don't have an answer written down and they're looking for you to match that number. They're listening for how you process um, your thinking. So how do you get to your answer? So we want to start engaging your creative brain, your innovator's mindset. Seek out opportunities to practice divergent thinking and creative problem solving. And if you find yourself getting stuck, remember to let your mind and feet wander. So remember we talked in the beginning, wandering mind is really important. Some of the most brilliant minds of our world engage in physical movement to get their minds flowing. Because remember, when your body moves, your brain grooves. So get up, move around, do something else to relieve your executive functioning center and come back with fresh eyes and a fresh mind. And with your classes too, we used to take them for walks to um, share their writing with a partner and get some peer feedback and or just a break and then come back to it afterward. And they always had new ideas and they, they caught things that they wanted to revise and edit. And I'll leave you with this today before I sign off. How can you use this? Why must you use this? And when will you use this? Because this really, I mean, it's obvious, but this is this is best practice stuff, right? Developing a culture of risk-taking, um, normalization of mistakes, uh, resilience, creative thinking, divergent question asking, you know, authentic problem solving. This is all best practice. We know this. So how can you use this? Why must you use this? And when will you use this? And here's a special treat for your brain that I'm going to leave you with. Here's a question for you. How much should someone charge to wash all the windows in New York City? Chew on that one. How much should someone charge to wash all the windows in New York City? All right, Teacher Brain. You have been listening to the Teaching Little Brains podcast with Sarah Nikaruk. Until next week, be kind, be safe, be creative. Bye for now.